Welcome to the Service Driven Life Podcast. I am your host, Tracy Clark, and I have set up over 4,000 nonprofits and received over $10 million in grant funding. This podcast is designed to highlight community heroes and give tips on nonprofit and service-based business growth. Welcome back, Earth Angels. We have a special guest today. We're going to be hearing all about what she's done with her organization. I'm going to let her introduce herself. Um, hello, Vichy. Thank you so much for coming on to our show. Can you tell everyone a little bit about yourself and a little bit about your organization? Yeah, definitely. Thanks so much for having me. This is fun. Um, I am Vichy Jagannathan. Uh, Work-wise, I am one of the co-founders of Rural Opportunity Institute. So we are a five-person startup nonprofit based in rural Eastern North Carolina. Um, So specifically, the town we work in is uh, called Tarboro, and I live about 20 minutes away in Rocky Mount. Um, But our main goal is to support community organizations as well as community members uh, to understand and design innovative solutions that help them interrupt cycles of generational trauma. And so really trying to understand the unique history of our community in the rural South and the ways that different systems in the past may have perpetuated harm and how we can move towards more healing. Um, And then just about me a little bit, I originally grew up in New York, um, had the chance to study engineering in California. And while I was over there, um, also got exposed to a lot of different social innovation practices and was really energized by that. And then uh, did Teach for America in Eastern North Carolina and just fell in love with the community. That's how I met my co-founder. We both had seen social innovation in different contexts and got really interested in just like smashing the world and connecting more resources to rural. And that has over time grown to now this organization. So that's been really fun. Awesome. So tell me a little bit more about what you guys do. What does that look like? Like the services and you know, that was a lot. <laughs> and dealing with trauma, which I love that everyone is doing, is offering different things to deal with some of the trauma. And we're focusing in on mental health because for a long time, mental health was kind of put on the back burners when it comes to nonprofits. Uh, you know, they were talking about the immediate things, hunger and housing and, you know, but now we're actually putting it on the forefront, which I'm so excited about because, you know, it's at the core of everything. So tell me about what your services look like or, you know, what does that, what does uh, that exactly look like? Yeah, no, I feel like you kind of gave me a great lead in talking about how it's at the core. So basically the way that it all started is uh, my co-founder and Seth and I were high school teachers. And uh, at first, you know, we didn't have any experience in the rural South, definitely didn't have experience teaching prior to that, and had heard a lot of stories from people blaming kids and families for different types of challenging behaviors, or, you know, they don't come to school regularly because they don't care, or this and that, and it just didn't track with our relationships with them, Um, and digging into it more, it just became clear that it really wasn't the fault of kids and families for some of the challenges they experience, but actually the way that our systems over time have perpetuated and continue to create trauma for families that was putting them in this impossible situation Hmm. um, and leading to all these outcomes that then we sort of turn to people and say, why can't you do better? And we both got very curious about what actually would it look like for not just schools, but all the different systems people interact with to provide support rather than continuing to blame people. 
Um, and we had learned about uh, these different processes, human-centered design and systems thinking in the Bay. And they you know, sound super buzzwordy, but at the core, it's just really starting with understanding people's experience before mm -hmm. making assumptions about what they need. And there's some kind of helpful, specific tools and ways that you can collaborate with folks to get to that understanding. And so when we started ROI, we spent the first year basically just listening. And so rather than coming in, I mean, first of all, we did not have a solution. It's a super complicated problem. So we, we legitimately were like, we're not sure what is needed here, but let's learn from the people who live it every day. Um, and so we facilitated a bunch of different community activities. We'd have these open community meetings. We'd rotate the locations to different kind of trusted locations, um, schools, the rec center, parks, and invite anybody who wanted to to come and share. And people would just organically talk about their experience. We weren't asking about trauma. We weren't talking about trauma. Just sort of, you know, what has been most helpful? What do you wish you had more of? What were some of the most challenging times? And overwhelmingly what emerged was this idea that very often folks will experience a traumatic or very challenging event or set of events, and they will turn to um, social services or the police or schools or any of these public systems that are supposed to help them. And instead of getting help, they will often encounter punishment or isolation or blame. And that is actually what tips things over into being unmanageable. Like at that point, then they might lose their house or lose their child or not be able to go to their job. Um, and at that point, then they're in this vicious cycle where they're, mm -hmm. you know, getting punished for not showing up or being sent to jail or arrested or whatever it is. And it's very difficult to recover from that. And so what we heard overwhelmingly was like from all parts of the community, all kinds of interactions with systems, this pattern, pattern of punishment and blame that just over generations has made it really hard for people to thrive. And everyone could really get on the same page about that. I mean, from the individuals we were talking to who have experienced this to like the sheriff, the superintendent, county managers, like everyone was in these rooms kind of nodding along saying, yeah, you're right. Like no one of us is to blame, but this is what's happening. And so out of that whole process, we kind of then had this really engaged couple hundred people who were saying, we got to do something about this. What does that look like? Um, and so what the services have looked like from that point is we aren't really trying to create or replace anything. Like there are already a ton of engaged and capable leaders in the community doing the work, but more so it's become like, how do we build each of their capacity to recognize how they maybe have been intentionally or unintentionally perpetuating harm and what's a more restorative alternative. So like as a couple of examples, we work uh, directly with uh, Department of Social Services to understand like within the Child Protective Services Department, how do we actually help manage the stress and workload of the social workers hmm. so that when they're met with these extremely challenging realities in front of them, they're able to pause and you know step in the shoes of parents and families and, and help them work through whatever it is, because it's like they want the best for kids and families, but it can be really hard. Mm -hmm. um, or how do we support teachers to be able to like stay calm in the classroom so that when a difficult situation happens, they don't immediately jump to like escalating it. Um, so anyway, okay. long way of saying, <laughs> I'd say a lot of what we do now is actually supporting the frontline providers who are being met with these 
traumatic situations to have the tools to be able to self-regulate, understand what's going on and work with families or kids or whoever they're serving to find that more restorative option rather than immediately jumping to the punishment. Got it. And how are you supporting them? Do you all offer like workshops or are you, um, what are your ways you're supporting them right now? Yeah, so we, we kind of do a handful of things. Uh, we have partnered with another organization in North Carolina called Resources for Resilience to develop uh, training. And so that ranges from like 90 minutes to 14 hours, just depending on, you know, the needs of different organizations. Um, but to date, we have been able to reach over 13,000 people in the community with that training. Wow. And that's a mix of not just kind of information about, you know, it's not just facts and history of trauma and stuff. That's part of it. But then uh, they call it the owner's manual to your nervous system. So people actually start to practice and understand like when I feel stress and trauma, what does that feel like in my body? How mm -hmm. can I recognize it? And then what are tools in the moment that I can use to self-regulate? They call them like rapid resets. Like how do I quickly reset and then think clearly about the situation? Um, so that's been super helpful. And then out of that, we actually developed a set of flashcards and each of the cards has one of the tools on it and a little description. So people can kind of carry those around and in the moment, remind themselves or practice the tools. So that's like one offering. Very often people do that training and then they're like, well, now I need to know, you know, like what else can I do? What in my organization, in this situation? So a couple of years ago, we launched, um, kind of what we're calling an accelerator program called Resilient Leaders Initiative, where teams could apply to get nine months of support from us to more deeply dive into, okay, I have this training, I kind of get what's going on, here's the specific way it's showing up in my organization, can I get support to better understand that and then learn like what are the best practices around the country for dealing with this that they can pilot and implement. So the social services example I gave kind of came through that. We worked with them for nine months to really understand like where in their whole department were they seeing the biggest needs in their cases of the CPS. And then like for those folks, what support do they most need? And so a lot of a lot of it is like the training kind of lights the fire, but then how are we walking along the journey with folks to say, okay, it's not, you're not gonna solve it overnight. These right. systems are really entrenched mm -hmm. in your unique context. What does it look like um, to try to be more restorative? And the hope is the solutions that we're able to design locally, ideally we could then publish and share out with other you know, departments and agencies similar to ours that face the same challenges. Awesome. Awesome. Um, we work with a lot of nonprofit organizations. Are you all considered nonprofit or for-profit or somewhere? I know they have these new things as well, <laughs> like social, I think I forgot what they're called, but they're kind of in between. Yeah, we're currently, uh, we operate nonprofit. We're uh, fiscally sponsored by a really great organization here called Area LAHEC that does a mm -hmm. lot of work to support healthcare workers. Um, so we have been incubated under them as a nonprofit. Um, awesome. So yeah, really excited yeah. to support other nonprofits that are doing similar work. Awesome. And so do you guys rely heavily on grant funding for your programs or are you also um, having some like actual charges that you guys use to supplement as well? Yeah, it's a mix. Um, so we are predominantly grant funded to date. Um, there's a number of, of super generous, uh, mostly North Carolina based foundations that have supported the work. Um, in the last couple of years, uh, for sustainability reasons, we've definitely been thinking about more diverse funding. Um, 
One thing that's happened a little bit recently is more of sort of like government contracts, Health and Human Services and Department of Ed and that kind of thing. Uh, looking kind of what you said, there's like more of an awareness now of how mental health is important in these different spaces. And so we're seeing more state and federal funding that we're able to tap into to offer this sort of training. Um, and then just now getting started on outside of our local community when other communities, you know, whether it's other school districts or whatever, reach out to us and say, hey, like we have this professional development budget. Can we incorporate your training or, you know, can we purchase those flashcards or can you consult with us for nine months as well? So we are growing our capacity to better respond to those requests, but definitely hoping to build out more of like a almost like set of consulting offerings so that we can better support other communities. Awesome. And do you guys only work locally or um, are you able to provide your trainings uh, virtually as well for some people who may not be um, local? Yeah, so it's funny. We were, I mean, we were in our pretty hyper local in our focus, um, just trying to, I, I guess, recognizing that this type of change takes a long time, like trying to not lose focus and really make sure we continue to pay attention locally and see things through. And I think because of COVID, we were all sort of forced to get virtual whether we wanted to or not. And so that's been positive because now we can, like even though a lot of it is focused locally, we're very often now able to offer like a hybrid option. And so the trainings that I mentioned, we now do a quarterly free virtual 90 minute training. And that is like on our website, anybody in the world can call into it, wow. but it's, you know, it's hosted locally, trainers locally are doing it, but since it's a link, like, why not? Um, yeah. So there are some things that we've been able to just easily scale. And I think as everybody gets more of the hang of virtual and the metaverse and all this stuff, um, hopefully we can continue to connect more that way. So we're definitely interested in that. Awesome, awesome. Um, that's amazing that you're able to offer it. And that's what I've seen with a lot of nonprofits is that the pandemic actually were, uh, made them able to serve even more because they had to go virtual. So yeah, a lot of them have saw new programs because of the pandemic as well. So um, before we get too far away from grant funding, that's the biggest questions I have from my nonprofits. I know they're gonna, gonna wanna know more about that. Is there any tips you would give or has that been a challenging area for you all? Um, I know sometimes it's challenging for newer organizations and I guess that would be another question. How long have you guys been doing it? Oh yeah, I just, I never said that. Um, so we started in summer of 2017. So it's like very almost our sixth birthday, I guess, awesome. um, which is pretty crazy. Um, and yeah, I think the fundraising thing is always just like a huge challenge. Um, like I said, the majority of our funding so far has come from North Carolina based foundations. And I think one thing that's been really good about that is the place-based focus. Like we are very rooted in a specific place and there are a lot of funders that are specifically motivated by supporting Eastern North Carolina and rural North Carolina and kind of, um, yeah, a lot of the, I mean, this is more of a complicated thing and I've written a blog post about this um, in Giving Compass that I can also share, but um, the history of a lot of the wealth that supports us in many ways was generated through labor in Eastern North Carolina over centuries. And, you know, that's like now a lot of the foundations are sort of, you know, Reynolds, RJ Reynolds family money, that kind of stuff. Um, and so in a way it's complicated because it can be very difficult and traumatizing to 
be applying for those funds to support mm. work that in yeah. some ways is connected to that history. Um, mm. And at the same time, I think we're seeing a, a kind of positive shift happening where a lot of those foundations, at least locally, are starting to acknowledge that history and saying like, we want to commit more to Eastern North Carolina, or we understand that uh, the requirements might be, you know, need to be more flexible, or we need to look at more old, early stage founders or founders of color, you know, locally led organizations. So in a, in a helpful way, I think we're seeing more awareness of that and funding coming to these types of grassroots things. And so we've been able to take advantage of it um, in a good way to just build on that momentum. And we have also faced the challenge, I think, of you know the typical biases people have of like uh, you know rural organizations might not be rural or small organizations may not be able to handle big gifts or like mm -hmm. you know can you demonstrate really you know at the end of the year what outcomes do you have and a lot of this work is not the kind of thing you don't heal trauma in a year mm -hmm. um, and so we sometimes I think struggle to tell the story in a way that helps people see the incremental progress. Like even if we might not get to the whole big vision in a year, like we do have indicators of progress and we can share stories or help people kind of feel how this stuff makes an impact. So I don't know, one of our bigger challenges has been the storytelling, but I think when we are able to do it well, it does overall, I think, help shift philanthropy's expectations to say Absolutely. like, oh, even if we can't, check these boxes and see these numbers like if we want this long-term change to happen these types of gifts where we're a little more patient are moving the needle um mm -hmm. so i mean the more that we can i think build coalitions with other organizations who are doing this type of long-term work and continue to push funders to see like when we're more patient these things take time but we can have results like that to me I think we found community like more and more of that community, but it's like tapping into the funders that really get it and see it that way. Like once they do, I feel like they're very committed. Um, it's just like sometimes they're hard to find. Um, so we've been fortunate enough to find some of those folks, and I think that's what's carried us along. But for every funder that we do have a you know positive relationship with, there's been several who are just like, we don't we don't do that type of stuff. Like mm -hmm. we fund things that are more research based, less risky. You know, we're looking for these clear outcomes and it just like isn't a good fit always. So I don't know, rather than trying to fit into these specific requirements, I think at this point, we're just like, who is already aligned with us? Yeah. And let's just really pour into that. Mm -hmm. And you said you guys were able to find some organizations that have been aligned and foundations. Um, any tips on how you were able to link with them? Um, was it through the grassroots community, which I want to get back to, because that was some, I had some questions about that, but was it through that year that you guys spent building those relationships in the community? Yeah, I think it was like, it, it was and is very relational. Mm -hmm. um, I think early on, there were a couple of helpful connections. Being part of the Teach for America network was helpful early on. Um, some of our earliest funders had also backed TFA in the past. So by being part of that network, I think we kind of got connected and they were like, oh, we want to support alums who are saying the region. And if they were backing, I mean, Teach for America is controversial, obviously. Um, but in this case, like for those who were local backing TFA locally, it's like they clearly have this commitment to that specific community. Um, so that was the initial touch point. And then I'll, interestingly, since then, I think it's a lot of like 
funders themselves telling other funders. Like they talk all the time, they know each other. And so when we had a couple of early champions, they would kind of be like, you know, I think these two other foundations that I know well would be interested in like, this one may not be, it might just be too hard of a sell. And so uh -huh. they can kind of back channel and tell us like, hey, you might wanna to apply to these guys, make some connections. And then, you know, when those funders found out that these people were supporting us, they're like, oh, if they're on board, okay, we'll like match it or whatever. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. I, I wish it was less of like a weird back channel relational game um, because I think that has a lot of inequities built into it. But that is how it's kind of worked out most successfully is like following yeah. referrals. And I mean, we've definitely cold applied to stuff, like just submitted the online application. And I feel like that's like when you apply to jobs and it just like, disappears into the ether and you're like did anyone ever read this um so we have way more success when it's like a, some sort of warm introduction yes um, that is harder to come by yeah actually one of my clients was just talking about um you know he was uh, applying for the walmart grant and he was just not having success with it and he went into the walmart which i suggested um it's a good first grant for a lot of organizations he went in there met with the manager she immediately approved it and then sent it over to several other Walmarts because you can get multiple. So just how important it is sometimes to just connect and, you know, for people to see the face and the person behind the organization. Right. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Absolutely. I wanted to go back a little bit to those community um, meetings that you were having because um, organizing events and meetings and things like that is a challenge that a lot of our nonprofits have. Can you kind of like dig into that a little more, how you were able to get people to attend? What were they, what was the title or the, you know, the, um, was it free dinner or something? <laughs> yeah, actually, I'm like, there's definitely part of that. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, it was interesting. I mean, when we started the organization, we knew we wanted broad community engagement. And we also knew we like didn't have broad community ties. Um, so there's a little bit of this catch-22. One thing that was really helpful was we were super connected to the schools just because of being teachers. And they were already convening something that they were calling, I think, the Mental Health Task Force. And they, it was not super big, but it was bringing together like a couple of different stakeholders in the community, you know, social services, some other organizations. And so when we, we kind of asked them like, hey, we're trying to do this community engagement. Do you have any suggestions? And they were like, well, why don't you come to our next mental health task force meeting and present? And maybe some people will have ideas. And so we kind of started there. And then a lot of the people in that room were like, oh, actually there's this group that already meets focused on opioid addiction. There's, oh, I'm part of this group that already meets focused on healthcare. Like it turns out there are like, even in a pretty small rural community of like not more than 50,000 people, there are like at least 10 of these collaborative standing spaces that already exist. And people are going there and already meeting like once a month mm -hmm. or whatever. And so I think pretty quickly we were like, wait, rather than creating our own thing like let's start by just going to where people are already gathering and trying to fit into that um and so initially it was a lot of that like we started just going showing up at all these other meetings and you start to kind of like realize it's a lot of the same people or you know get a sense for their cadence like ah, oh, they encounter each other at all this stuff let's just go to all this stuff um so that was super helpful i think and like way easier than 
kind of make up our own thing and convince people to come to it. Once we had built more relationships, it did start to, start to feel a little bit like maybe we should have our own space. Um, and so then we started doing this every eight to 12 weeks open community meeting of our own. And pretty often we'd ask somebody from one of these existing spaces if they, I mean, A, we didn't have space. So we couldn't host it at our own office. That would be like our house. Um, <laughs> so we'd ask them like, hey, do you have a, would you mind co-hosting this community meeting with us? And they'd be like, yeah, I actually have a really great event space that I want more people to know about. So they would co-host it with us and we would provide the agenda. We would provide like catered lunch. Um, and then we just tell people like, hey, come for a lunch meeting, free lunch, stay for an hour and a half. We want to get your, you know, we want to share what we're up to and get some input. And uh, this person is co-hosting it. And like the co-host is like giving this reputation and people are like, oh, I love her. Like, sure, I'll go to this. I like that space. I'll have lunch and we would move it around. So, you know, once we had that meeting, maybe somebody was there that we wanted to build a better relationship. So we'd be like, oh, can we co-host the next meeting at your church? And they're like, yeah, sounds great. Um, and that kind of, that we still have that meeting. So we now have it quarterly. It's hybrid. Um, we had it all virtual through COVID and like kept the engagement. And it still rotates, it's still co-hosted, it's still catered. But I think there's like something about the just like shared ownership of it that yes. we're telling people like, here's our meeting at our mm. office that you need to like come to. It was more just like, we as a group are meeting and like, this is the next time we're all gonna get together. Um, and it's kind of social, but also we're doing some activities together. Or we might be working on something or sharing updates. So, uh, it's a little bit like organically how it grew. Like people loved these meetings and like they still do. And we're always kind of like, why? A little bit like, why did people like the meeting so much? But I think there's something about the shared connection that's like built into this thing. Uh, but part of it was initially like not trying to, try, not trying too hard to like make its own thing. Just like letting it organically evolve until it was like, okay, I think we need our own space because people want to gather. It seems like like the truest definition of grassroots, like really listening. And it's funny, I just had a conversation with someone the other day and they were we were kind of like talking about competition within nonprofit space. Like, how does that look? And, you know, can I work with I was suggesting partnering with the organization and they're like, you know, I'm a little bit nervous about that because if we're partnering, isn't that aren't we applying for the same funding and all of those things? From what I'm hearing, it sounds like those are kind of the furthest things from your mind. Would you talk a little bit about your opinion on it? Yeah, no, it's like super real uh, and kind of the, why I'm laughing is uh, so actually this weekend right now, my co-founder is getting married um, and his wedding is here in town. Um, and so last night there was some like pre-wedding. They had a little kind of gathering at the park and uh it was an interesting mix. It's like friends from out of town and family, but then several community partners we've just built relationships with over time were like also at the wedding. And so one of uh, those people is, he runs the Boys and Girls Club here. And he kind of impromptu invited people over last night for like an after party at his house. And so we went over there and he, I didn't know this was gonna happen, but he started telling this story and he's like, you know, I met these guys like six years ago. They come into my office and they're showing me all these research and documents. And he's like, the whole time I'm skeptical of them. Like, 
who are these people and like what are they trying to do you know he's he's been around a long time running the boys and girls club like super successful nonprofit. um and he just was like i don't know what these kids are talking about but like sure i'll do this meeting and he's like and then you know i looked down on my watch and they're still talking and so i finally i'm like starting to listen and he he said he's like at, by the end of it he's like i didn't know what they were talking about but i just said are you doing something that can help me better serve these kids here? And we were like, oh yeah, here's like three different things we can do. And he's like, that, at that point I was like, okay, cool. I don't exactly, you know, I'm not exactly sure, but like ultimately we are trying to do the same thing. So sure, like, let me know how I can help. Um, and then he was joking that like, he thought that was the end of it. And we kept inviting him to these meetings. And he's like, you know, I, normally don't have time to go to this stuff but like they kept inviting these meetings so I finally am going and he's like every time I go they're letting me like speak and say something they're always saying oh like what about you what do you think so he's like I mean if you ask me to speak I'm going to speak uh and and over time he just was like yeah I realized that we were not like we were just all working towards the same thing like yeah I'm going to keep coming I'm going to keep speaking like this is a, this isn't like a competitive space and so I think the fear is real. Like, I think it's coming from real experiences where people have experienced this competition, this like turfy, you know, like, oh, are you meeting with me because you want a partner? Or are you meeting with me so that you can get something out of it? Hmm. Like, you can put my name on a grant application or whatever. So I think that's a real fear. And I felt it. Like, a lot of people initially were skeptical of us. I think they were wary of Teach for America. They're wary of like all these things. Like, who are these people? And like, why are you doing this? Um, and it was just like, I wasn't thinking about it that way. I mean, we, we just were naive. Like we didn't know, um, we legitimately just wanted to partner. But over, over time, I think that was a thing. Like people were skeptical and then they just had to like see it play out. And they were like, mm -hmm. oh, this isn't like that. Like we co-wrote grants with a lot of folks, like mm -hmm. uh, as much as possible. Like we don't want to charge local nonprofits who are doing the same thing. Like we don't want to charge them for services. We're just trying to get grant funds so we can partner with them. Um, so I think it's just been like demonstrating over the years, uh, but it's totally true that that's not always the case. Like, I think there is often this competitive nature. So trying to just like prove to people that that's not what we're about takes time. Um, yeah. And it does take sort of effort, like you have to mean it. Like we are careful to, you know, not try to accidentally fall into that stuff. Mm -hmm. But it's funny because now it's like a little bit second nature, I, I like I hadn't even thought about it and then he's telling the story and I was like wow I didn't even know that that was how he felt um, that that's mm -hmm. did that, so did that, that, that even, cool. mm -hmm. because that's the great thing about the nonprofit space to me is that it's all about the community so if it's all about the community like he said you know if you can help me to help these kids if that's my mission then you know it should be a natural space where how can we all come together and in a more of a cohesive way or a way that we complement each other be able to support the community because needs the needs are typically if they're still unmet that means that you know more is welcome so it's good that you guys entered the space wanting to work with other would you say that would probably be part of your success um strategy that you've done is partnering with the community yeah, I mean, I think like one of the realizations we had is like once you do the listening and you hear about everyone's challenges, I mean, it is not possible for one organization to take it all on. Like there'd just be no world where we, like it was very overwhelming to us, I think, to be like, 
how there's no possible way we could you know we were hoping for like the silver bullet like ah all we all we need is an app that does this like that literally we were like then we could do it but what people were naming is this complicated thing so to me it was like there is no way we could do this alone let's not even try to do that like we're not going to be able to get a bunch of kids to come to our space every day after school and trust us and build relationships and like the boys and girls club is already great at that why would we try to make a thing that does that's super hard but instead like what are we really great at we're, we're really great at the specific type of training we're really great at you know bringing in trainers and resources that can support so i mean they don't have the capacity necessarily and shouldn't have to to do that so how do we just like everyone has a different strength i think and how can we better let organizations or people or whatever it is like really hone in on their strength and then be able to lean on each other to say okay i'm really good at this i need help with that can we all just like do the one thing we're good at together and i feel like a lot of the community organizations have been super open to that it's just not very often how we do business like very mm -hmm. often we expect everyone to be good at everything and like own it all and just not share it's like we're the best at everything we're doing it our way but actually like i don't want to be the best at everything that sounds very hard mm -hmm. <laughs> um, i would rather be like what's the one thing everybody says they wish they had support on let's zero in on that and then like you guys do the great work you already do with building trust with families and coming up with these activities and having an amazing space and uh you know they're way more entertaining and <laughs> fun than <laughs> us we're like yeah we'll just support you so I think that that has been, I mean, it wasn't like 100% explicit at first, but very early on, I think it was clear to us that like, there are a ton of assets that already exist and it mm -hmm. would make zero sense to try to compete. I mean, we would never win. It's like, why would you <laughs> bother to compete mm -hmm. when it's, the assets are already there? We just need to be looking at it. Awesome. That's so good. Thank you so much for sharing, Bichi. What are some areas right now you all are needing support in, um, you know, and tell everyone where they can find you as well? Yeah, so I think in terms of uh, support, uh, kind of what, what I was alluding to before, one of the things I think we're trying to get better at is, A, like storytelling, like really capturing what the intermediate impacts look like, and then being able to share that in a compelling way that motivates people to action, either to, you know, support us, financially or to get involved. Um, so, you know, anybody who kind of has expertise or resources on like storytelling, marketing, communications, like what works to tell those stories of impact, that's definitely an area of focus. Um, and then just in terms of like getting involved or partnering with us, we are trying to, you know, build our capacity to better share with other communities, like the trainings that are working for us or the different tools we've developed. And so some of that stuff is already on our website, ruralopportunity.org. But, um, you know, there is nonprofits out there who are like, oh, I would love to implement more trauma-informed practices in some setting. Like we're always open to trying to figure out how to partner and share our stuff. Like I said, we do the quarterly open virtual training. Um, so that's on our website as well. Anybody can sign up. That's like a really good way to get introduced. Um, and then out of that, we, um, offer these flashcards that kind of have the tools that are taught in the training. So that's also something you can like request on our website. So our website has everything, maybe like too many things, um, but 
a lot of ways to just get involved. We want to connect with anyone who's doing similar work to try to just like collectively increase the amount of healing and trauma-informed work happening in all of our communities. Awesome. We will definitely put your website link below. Do you happen to know the next date um, of the next quarterly one? And if not, no worries. <laughs> I think I should know that off the top of my head. Um, I do not. It's okay. Um, As a matter of fact, we'll get that information and we'll make sure we put it at the bottom. It'll be in the bottom um, by the time this comes out. So perfect. Um, thank fun. you so much for sharing. I appreciate it. This has been a wonderful conversation. Um, and thank you all so much for listening. We will catch you all in the next one. Thank you so much for listening. If you are listening on Apple Podcasts, please feel free to leave a review. If there was some type of nugget that you got out of this last episode. And if you are not following us on social media, you can follow us on Instagram at Tracy Angelica Clark. And our website is ClarkandClark.org. If you are interested in starting a nonprofit organization and you don't know where to begin, we have set up over 4,000 nonprofit organizations and we've helped them to receive over $11.5 million in grant funding. So reach out to me and I'll let you know when our next training program starts and I'll get you all the details on how to get started with a nonprofit today. If you have not already downloaded our free nonprofit crash course and checklist, you can do so at ClarkandClark.org and I'll see you guys in the next one.